Welcome to episode 156 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. The Sentientism worldview answers those two deep questions by committing to evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I speak with Peter Singer. Peter is often referred to as the world's most influential living philosopher. He's the R.W. de Camp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University. He specializes in applied ethics, approaching the subject from a secular, naturalistic, utilitarian perspective. He wrote the book Animal Liberation in 1975 and has just launched on the same day as this episode his rewrite Animal Liberation Now. He also wrote the essay Famine, Affluence and Morality and the books The Life You Can Save and The Most Good You Can Do, which argue for effective altruism, a movement that uses evidence and reasoning to do the most good we can for all sentient beings, both human and not. In 2004, Peter was recognised as the Australian Humanist of the Year by the Council of Australian Humanist Societies. In 2021, he received the Bergeron Prize for Philosophy and Culture. Peter donated the $1 million prize money to organisations working effectively to assist people in extreme poverty and to reduce the suffering of animals in factory farms. Peter is co-founder of Animals Australia and the founder of the charity The Life You Can Save. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 155 others. Why not let us know via a review, rating, or comment? Check out our back catalogue too if you've just found us. Hopefully these episodes are pretty timeless. Every person who subscribes, likes, rates, reviews, or shares an episode with a friend helps to nudge the world towards more compassionate, rational thinking. And that is the plan. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info where you can sign up for email updates or just search for sentientism, that's sentient with ism on the end on your favorite social media platform. You'll be made very welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested in these ideas, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Good evening, Peter. How are you? I'm well, Jamie, and you? Yeah, very good, very good. Well, it's such an honour to have you as a guest on Sentientist Conversations, partly because you're a major inspiration for this amateurish project in the first place, but also you're cited so often by so many of my guests as a major influence on your on their thinking and their work too. So it's great to have you here as a guest. Well, it's good to speak to you because I know that you've been doing a lot about sentient beings and sentientism, so that's terrific. Yeah, we have hope. We'll, we'll find out how much we have in common in the course of the conversation. Um, and it's brilliant also to be able to time this with the launch of Animal Liberation Now, the, the it's basically a fundamental rewriting of your 1975 classic. And you can sense the urgency in the fact you've added the word now to the title too. So it's good to be able to synchronise with that, hopefully. The, the now has two meanings, really. It is urgent. And what I and write about in the book in terms of the scale of the problem um, certainly makes it urgent. But it's also to make the contrast with Animal Liberation in 1975 when the book was first published, or even in 1990, which was the last uh, full update and revision that I did of the book. And obviously things have changed a lot over uh, 47 years, 48 years almost, um, or uh, even over 33 years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's a fascinating read. I was lucky to get an advanced copy, so thank you for that. Um, so as you know already, this is a series of conversations about what I think of as the two deepest philosophical questions, the questions of epistemology, what's real, and how do we choose what to believe and what credence is to hold. Um, but just as importantly, the basic questions of ethics, what matters and who matters. And I have an obvious bias because I'm trying to develop and popularise sentientism as a sort of broad pluralistic worldview. And it 
I think reflects and builds on some really you know ancient themes of naturalistic thought that you could even argue have pre-human origins, but certainly run through many human cultures using evidence and reason to try and understand reality. But it also builds on ancient themes and modern themes of a more sentiocentric compassion, you know, old ideas of Ahimsa, but then through to more modern times, and obviously your work and have Richard Ryder and the Godloviches and the Oxford group and so on as well. So I think it hopefully complements and links to those themes quite richly. But at the same time, there are probably some differences from your own personal perspective. And in a way, where animal liberation now is strongly driving to reject speciesism, I guess I, in a way, think of sentientism as the sort of positive way of doing just that instead of focusing on the discrimination we want to end. It's focusing on the, the positive characteristic of sentience that we want to respect and have compassion for and care about. So I guess the, the way I framed this, this idea of a sentientist worldview, and we can explore the degree to which you agree or not, is first that it's an explicitly naturalistic epistemological commitment. So the evidence and reason in the summary is that we should use evidence and reason in a naturalistic way of understanding the world almost independent of our stance on ethics. But when it comes to ethics, clear as in the name, um, that we should focus very hard on having a moral scope that includes every sentient being, regardless of their species or even their substrate or who they are or what they're like. But at the same time, I've tried to keep it quite ethically pluralistic. So I think you can approach that scope question of who gets to count in all sorts of different ethical ways, deontological or utilitarian or feminist care ethics or relational or social contract, whatever. So I've almost said, well, in a way, that doesn't matter so much. What matters most is getting the scope right. And the third thing I've tried to do is to be clear about at least a minimal expectation of what moral consideration might mean, because there's a lot of slippage around that topic that I'm keen to try and address. And again, different ethical schools of thought will think very differently about obligations and moral obligations based on degrees of moral consideration or even a binary idea of moral consideration. Um, but I've suggested there's a pragmatic minimum that we should at least not want to needlessly harm or kill any sentient being. We'd like to go beyond that. You know, I'd certainly like people to do more than that for me, but maybe that's a baseline that we could agree, again, pluralistically, uh, as a way of thinking about minimal protections. So that's that's roughly the way I framed it, hopefully as a broad pluralistic worldview. But we can dig into how you answer those questions and where you might differ as we go through too. Sure, yes, uh, I think we're in a fair amount of, of agreement there. What needlessly killing amounts to, of course, is a question that could have a lot of discussion. So, yeah, we maybe we'll, we'll touch on that. But um, certainly on the point that sentientism is the boundary of moral consideration, uh, that we should move to that boundary and that uh, I don't see a justification for moving beyond it in terms of intrinsic value. Uh, obviously, many things that are not sentient are of enormous instrumental value. In terms of what really matters in itself, I agree that sentientism is the right view. If uh, some people have trouble with speciesism as a, as a term to get used to, um, I, I suppose sentientism being a little longer will uh, also <laughs> cause some some uh, problems with people. But uh, I agree. Five syllables is too many. Yeah. Accurate term. <laughs> right. Yeah, thank you. Well, it, it, yes, it will be interesting to dig into you know um, some other nuances around that as we go through. But yeah, I, hopefully we we have much in common, partly because I'm so inspired by your work. But also, it was great to have you as one of the early signatories to our sort of "I'm a sentientist" 
wall on the website too. So I think at least in that broad sense, we we probably agree. But let's let's come on to the first of those really deep philosophical questions. So I describe sentientism as evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. So the first part, evidence and reason, um, is trying to answer this question of what's real and epistemology. So for many of my guests, that's a story about originally what sort of context they grew up in. Was it more religious or spiritual or supernatural? Was it already quite scientifically minded or naturalistic or uh, atheist agnostic? And uh, how has that side of their thinking changed over their life and where are they now? So it would be interesting, if you don't mind winding the clock back a little bit, to uh, how you grew up in that sort of supernatural versus natural context and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, certainly. Um... My parents were not religious at all. They came from a, a Jewish background. They came to Australia as refugees from the Nazis, leaving Austria as soon as they could after the Nazi invasion. But they were secular Jews. Um, my father went to synagogue uh, twice a year, I think, for the, the big holidays, um, but more out of convention, I suppose, maybe to meet some people rather than religious conviction. And my mother didn't go at all, um, and she was, you know, she was the more fervent. I'm not sure that atheist is the right word to describe my mother, but definitely a fervent agnostic, um, saying there just isn't, you know, as you just said, there there isn't reason to believe in um, a, a god or a supernatural being or a life after death. I think she was pretty firm that uh, there was no such thing, and um, uh, I think I probably took more from her than I did from my father yeah so you, it sounds like you were already in quite a sort of naturalistic mindset just because of the way your family were and one of the things I find fascinating is if you look at surveys around the world it's remarkable how many people there are with a naturalistic even an atheistic mindset even within large established religious communities and it seems to be particularly true of Jewish communities that there's quite a lot of secularism quite a lot of humanism quite a lot of naturalistic thinking quite a lot of atheism within Jewish communities but people of course still have the affinity to the community and the ritual and the ideas and yeah that's right and i think particularly in the united states actually um at least some parts of the united states it's it's almost necessary to belong to a religion to have a community um i have a sort of distant cousin uh third cousin i think he is um who's a, who is or was a rabbi he's retired now um and he was a rabbi in mobile alabama um and i talked to him a bit i went to visit him there and i talked to him about being a rabbi, uh, so that was rather far from anything that I had ever wanted to do. Uh, and he also seemed to be a fairly naturalistic sort of person when I spoke to him. And he he made the point about, you know, when they came to Mobile as a southern city and uh, everybody belonged to some religion or other, you know, everybody would ask you what your religion was. Uh, and if you said, I'm an atheist or even an agnostic, you got pretty strange looks. And also you didn't then really have a community to belong to. So, you know, that was his reason for belonging for going to synagogue and belonging to the community. But I then asked him, does he really believe in God, in the Jew, Jew, Jewish conception of a God? And he said, well, when I say God, I mean whatever it is in the universe that is a force for good. And I said, well, maybe that just means some human beings, not all of them, but, but hopefully quite a few of them. And he said, maybe that is what it means. Yeah. So, yeah, it's yeah. a good example, I think, of a, somebody who's part of a religion and even actually takes the role of rabbi in it, but isn't really a believer in, in God in the traditional sense at all. Yeah, remarkably common, I think. 
And and how did you think of those sort of religious beliefs, God, heaven and hell, you know, the other types of things that come along? Did you just think of them as a sort of intellectual curiosity that you didn't really engage with? Or did you sort of dig into them and try to challenge them? Or I kind of thought of them as fairy stories, really, I suppose. And once once I was old enough to know the distinction between fairy stories and reality, which was fairly young. Um, I remember I once went to a, a camp uh, where I was put in a room with um uh, a couple of, of Catholics, I, I think they were Catholics of Irish origin as when I was young, most Australian Catholics were, and they knelt down uh, before going to bed and, and started praying. And sort of that led to a discussion about what they believed in, and I sort of questioned that. And I remember that they suddenly became a bit frightened, and, and one of them said to the other, don't ask him any more questions. He'll only blacken his soul and go to hell. <laughs> I have to say, I wasn't in the least frightened of uh, that consequence of my questioning, but I, I find it sort of strange that they really seriously believed in this. Yeah, it's nice that he cared, though. He was looking out for you. Yes, I guess that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, and how have you come to think of, I guess, the role of religion in the world? Some people see it as, um, you know, there are positive aspects, of course, in terms of community and uh, a sense of identification that gives people a sense of purpose. Um, other people are more neutral and say, well, it's just a personal choice that doesn't have a, much of a bearing on how the world goes. Other people see it as a force for ill and and a, and a, and a danger. Do you have a sense of, and of course, there's an enormous variety of different types of religions yes. and supernatural beliefs. What's your overall yes, sense? Um, I do sometimes get asked that question and it's really hard to answer because they have, I think, that full range of effects that you described. They have both good effects. Um, you mentioned a sense of community belonging. Um, also, I think they tend to promote charity to the poor. Um, certainly, Christianity, Judaism, uh, Islam, yes, yeah, uh, Buddhism yeah. too. Yeah, um, you know, they they suggest that you should be tithing, which actually very few. Uh, Christians do, but uh, some do, and that's good. And in Islam, there's a zakat, which is a smaller percentage, but a percentage of, of wealth, not income. Um, a somewhat more complicated calculation, but but you know, those things are good. Um, and maybe they lead people to behave more ethically in some ways, perhaps because of their fear of the afterlife. On the other hand, historically, they've certainly fermented a lot of wars, um, you know, 30 years war in Europe was a devastating war between Protestants and Catholics, just for one example, but there have been so many more um, that uh, have had religious lines. And also now they're very often a conservative force against uh, what I see as progressive reforms. So um, that's clearly true on the abortion issue. Um, if there were no religious teachings against abortion, I don't think the United States would be divided over the issue of abortion now. Um, and I've also been interested in uh, voluntary assisted dying or um, uh, so that people can choose when to die, if, particularly if they're terminally or incurably ill and their quality of life has fallen to a point where they don't think it's acceptable and there's no prospect of that changing. Um, I think they should be able to receive aid from a physician so that they die at a time of their choosing in a peaceful way. Fortunately, now that legislation is spreading. Uh, it's first, I think, openly practiced in the Netherlands and then spread to Belgium. Um, and in Europe now, even uh, countries with Catholic traditions like Spain and Portugal um, have it. In the United States, it's in an increasing number of states. 
Canada has has uh, assisted dyeing, and uh, almost all of Australia does now as well. So um, that's a good thing, but it's been fought by the Catholic Church in particular, but by some other Christians uh, quite hard. Um, and that seems to me unfortunate because it's meaning that people have to suffer for really pointlessly when they don't want to and when there's not going to be any benefit to them or anyone else. Yeah. And it's and it's interesting that in many parts of society, it's become a sort of liberally accepted default that things like sexism and homophobia and transphobia are to be rejected out of hand. Yet it seems that religious organisations, institutions at massive scale still formalise exactly those types of policies in their operation and that fact is granted some sort of social license it's it's a sort of as you said there's this sense of more progressive ideas that are thinking more broadly about human equality and human rights but it does seem that religious organizations play a fairly distinctive role in pushing back against some of those things so yeah there's as you said there's good bad and average yeah exactly and as, as well as you know i talked about the sort of sanctity of life uh, aspect of religious teachings but also there's these teach teachings about sex which have been uh, a very negative influence in terms of repressing people um, and making people feel guilty you know never mind about same-sex relationships uh, heterosexuals who are not married in conservative parts of the world um, uh, but who have sex uh, feel guilty and um, and in fact you know, the highest rate of of unwanted teenage pregnancies in the United States is precisely in the most religious parts of the United States because, um, of course, they would not go on the pill. Um, that would be sinful. Um, that would presuppose that they're going to have sex when they're not married. Uh, and then guess what? Uh, some particular occasion comes along and that's exactly what they do and they get pregnant. And then they have this other dilemma about abortion because they're probably brought up to think that abortion was wrong. Yeah. So I and, and putting it more positively, one of the things I've tried to do with this sentientism idea, which is a bit contentious sometimes, is is, is make that explicit naturalistic commitment uh, as part of it. Hence, the evidence and reason starts the sentence. Um, but some people will say to me, look, why do you need to focus on this naturalistic commitment? They're sometimes nervous about disenfranchising or criticizing people with maybe a supernatural or a fideistic or a dogmatic or a religious worldview. You know, can't we just focus on the compassion? Isn't that enough? And my, my personal view is it's not. I think I think even if you have a rich sentiocentric compassion, if you're just fundamentally wrong about the world in some ways, that can still lead you to cause enormous harm. I mean, I mean, you might argue, you know, someone like Descartes is a great example of that, who he might have claimed to be sentiocentric, right? I care about all suffering, but because of a supernatural belief that you cannot suffer unless you're in sold and only humans have souls, you know, the apocryphal story of him torturing his wife's dog, you know, comes to the fore. So, so that's just one example of how I think it's really important that we have a rich sentiocentric compassion, but we ideally should also have a naturalistic grounding of understanding reality because things can go off the rails there too. But I, what, what do you see that is that, do you see epistemology in, in that important sense or? When you sent me the, uh, brief for the discussion and you said you were talking about naturalism and evidence and reason and I wondered about it because um, I think consequences matter um, I'm a 
utilitarian, which is a form of consequentialism. And I wondered whether, you know, you'd had this doubt that perhaps you want to embrace people who are religious and who are sympathetic towards animals and bring them towards sentientism. And there certainly are such people, um, right? um, I have Christian friends uh, who are trying to change Christianity and its teachings regarding animals, you know, to... Uh, Andrew Lindsay is, a, I guess, a great example. Andrew Lindsay is a well-known example, yes. Um, in the United States, uh, Charles Camosi has written a book called For Love of Animals. He's a professor of Christian ethics. And uh, uh, David Clough in the UK has uh, written, uh, I think, a two-volume lengthy work about uh, uh, religion and animals um, and arguing clearly for a, a non-speciesist view. Uh, so... Don't we want to encourage these people? Um, they really are sentientists, and that, and that they accept that uh, sentience counts. They, some of them, Camosi, uh, I suppose, for example, would would think that having a soul is important and gives you, uh, you know, makes some things more weighty because you're going to have an afterlife, whereas perhaps animals are not. But um, but still, uh, you know, he certainly wants to combat factory farming, just to take one example, and thinks that the church should speak out strongly against factory farming. Yeah, so I, I mean, it's an unqualified yes. Um, so uh, I think we can completely have common cause with people of all sorts of different types of worldviews who share that centiocentric compassion and share those same sorts of aims. And I've had many conversations in this series with people who have a religious worldview or a supernatural worldview. And one of one of my favourite conversations with was with Lisa Kemmerer, who's done exactly that type of work of working in the context of a wide range of different religious worldviews and helping them come to a more sentiocentric compassion. So it's an unqualified yes in wanting to work with those people in common cause to drive to essentially the same sort of aims. I guess I, I thought it was still useful to make a distinction between sentiocentrism as a you know worldview-independent, epistemology-independent granting of compassion to all sentient beings, and maybe recasting sentientism as an explicitly naturalistic version of that, partly because I do think there are distinct goods to be had from a commitment to naturalism. So you might almost see it as a, an analogue to the relationship between anthropocentrism and humanism, which in a way is an explicitly naturalistic worldview that turns away from a religious start, but grants universal compassion for all humans. Um, I was almost seeing as you might go from anthropocentrism to sentiocentrism, you might go from humanism to sentientism. That would be a combination of the naturalistic stance and the sentiocentric stance. But we'd absolutely work in concert with people of any worldview that have compassion for non-human animals and other sentient beings. Yes, I, I totally agree with you about the value of evidence and reason. And of course, that's also part of the effective altruism movement in which I've played a role and uh, consider myself an effective altruist. And, and Effective altruism, of course, says that well, we should we should be altruistic uh, as one of our one of our goals in life to make the world a better place. And of course, a lot of religious people would say that. And then it says we should use evidence and reason to make that decision as to how best to make the world a better place. And that's compatible, of course, with with Christian effective altruists, um, yeah. because they would say they will use evidence and reason to decide how best to allocate their resources, how best to donate to charity, for example, what are the most effective charities they can do if they want to help the poor. Um, so they would certainly do that. 
by your and my standards, they would leave evidence and reason at the door for some of their specifically religious beliefs. You know, they, I guess they recognise it as having a role, but not uh, covering every every aspect of their thinking. Yeah, and I think from my from my perspective, it almost comes back to what you were saying earlier on about there's an enormous variety of effects of supernatural and religious worldviews: some good, some bad, some neutral. And in a way, that's a, quite a good test for me because if someone has a, a belief that isn't grounded in evidence and reason, that has no negative impacts, you know, it doesn't lead them to discriminate, it doesn't lead them to harm others. It doesn't warp their understanding of this natural world that we all share so that they can still take effective decisions. In a sense, I'm not I'm not too worried about the fact they have that belief because it has no negative impacts on others. So, you know, that I'm reasonably comfortable with. Where I get more nervous is when those beliefs are used as a justification for discrimination or for harm, or they lead to an inaccurate understanding of reality that means it's harder for us to make reality better. And it it can be a little hard to draw a clean line between those two sometimes, because in a, in a sense, if we acknowledge the validity of essentially unfounded beliefs in some domains, it can make it a little harder to push back on them in domains where we're really worried about the effect. So, yeah, I'm. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with that. And I think there has been that tendency in intellectual debate over the last 20 or 30 years, at least, um, going back to sort of postmodernism and the idea that, well, this is your truth, but not my truth, uh, as if truth is relative in that way. And I think you see some of the effects of that maybe. Actually, I think, you know, you could say in the Trump era, but actually George W. Bush, I think, had some advisor who said, you know, well, um, we've, we, we, we don't have that uh, real-world viewpoint or something like that, basically saying, well, whatever... Whatever we say as the case goes, it's not like there's some reality that we have to check our uh, statements against. Yeah, yeah. And it feeds through, you know, popular culture and politics too. And we have plenty of good examples here in the UK, including the statement by one of our government ministers, you know, we've we've basically had enough of experts now. You know, we can, implying that we can sort of make up what we want to believe to be true and operate on that basis. So that's partly why I'm, you know, I, I sort of keep doubling down on this idea that, a, a naturalistic commitment is is an important part of a of a well rounded worldview. But um, but I I completely agree about being very open minded about the possibility of other worldviews and you know working together with people for common cause regardless of what they're you know. Yeah, I've probably softened a little bit on that since writing the first version of Animal Liberation in 1975. When um, you know I do have a chapter in the book called um, uh, A History of Speciesism and. Um, I was certainly very hard on on Christianity specifically in that. I talked about Descartes, as you did, and the Christian basis for his views, and I talked about the fact that the, uh, a 19th century pope uh, said that you couldn't have a society for the prevention of cruelty to animals in the Vatican because animals don't have souls and they don't really count. And, in fact, Aquinas said a lot of things about animals that... Uh, we don't have any direct duties to them because they don't have souls and are not made in the image of God. And uh, and I think that had a hugely negative effect on the treatment of animals for centuries. And only really only in, under Pope Francis has the Catholic Church repudiated that view of man's dominion. But uh, I think through working with some Christians, I've I've taken a slightly softer line. And in the in animal liberation now. I do talk about some of these Christians who I just mentioned who are definitely not speciesist and uh, 
trying very much to improve the situation for animals. So I think we, we need to recognise that as well as the less pleasant history. Completely agree. Yeah, and re- there's some really important work going on there. And in, even in the Christian context, you know, the idea of going back to the idea of the Garden of Eden and shifting from ideas of dominion to ones of stewardship and extending that universal compassion, you know, there's plenty to work on within many of those religious worldviews that can sort of pull them in our direction. Thank you. So, so the second of our <clears throat> big philosophical questions is about ethics. And I'll try and split it into what matters, and then we'll talk about who matters. But it's interesting for people who've left a religious worldview, because sometimes they have to rebuild their ethics because their ethics came from that religious worldview as a divine command theory, the Quran, the Bible, list of rules and so on. But for someone like you who never really grew up with that basis, again, if you can wind the clock back, what were the roots of your first thinking about ethics, right and wrong, good and bad? What what do those things actually mean in your family and society? And what were your earliest thoughts about that stuff? So I got, I, I guess I got different kinds of moral lessons. Um, I used to, when I was in high school, I used to, in the, in the summer vacation, uh, work in my father's office. He had a small um, importing business. He was importing coffee and tea um, into Australia. And I remember one occasion when I was working there um, where he said, uh, this supplier, uh, a coffee supplier, hasn't sent us an invoice for the last shipment. Um, I, I better remind him to send it. And, you know, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I may have said something, do you have to remind him, you know, because, of course, if he never sends an invoice, then the entire co- the, the, the entire price that you get for the coffee is 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 your profit, whereas uh, as an importer, he worked on a very small margin, generally 3%. So instead of getting uh, 100%, he was getting going to get 3% when, when the invoice was sent. Um, and he sort of, uh, you know, basically... <laughs> To some extent, I suppose, uh, reprimanded me, or um, you know, he said two things. He said, "Well, you know, you, you need to run your business honestly," and then he said something like, um, "You know, that's the way to keep customers and retain customers, and you know, have a good reputation. Reputation is very important." So, I, I think there was some ambivalence between saying, um, as you know, some people might say, if you just followed the rule, um, you know, always deal honestly with others. Some people would say that's something you ought to obey, irrespective of the consequences. But my father was aware of the fact that in the long run, he believed, he thought this would have good consequences. So that was, um, I I guess, one thing that I remembered that uh, came home. Um, I also was brought up with a sense of not inflicting suffering on on sentient beings, um, or not unnecessarily, Um, although, you know, we were big meat eaters, as most Australians were in the in the 50s and 60s when I was growing up. But I, I was once, um, again, I, I think it was quite small then, maybe eight or something. Um, we're staying down the beach with people and uh, there were some other friends there and they invited me to go fishing with them. And um, I sort of, my father said something about, you know, do you really want to catch, hook these fish up and watch them slowly die on in their air or something like that. I don't know. I did go fishing and I did catch a fish, um, um, but I didn't like it, I think. Perhaps perhaps what my father said put me off. That's the one and only time uh, I have ever gone fishing. And I think, you know, that sense, I, there were other occasions since then, I, I because, you know, Australians live by the coast and so if you walk along the beach or you walk out on a pier, you'll see people fishing and very often they don't kill the fish when they haul them in. They let them suffocate slowly. 
uh, and I find that very unpleasant now. And I think, you know, my, my father uh, was keen on cats. He, there were cats. He, we had a cat for a while and there were, would feed a stray cat or something like that. So there was, there was definitely a concern for non-human animals, but not to the point of really inquiring too much about how they were reared and killed and uh, not questioning really the fact that we were eating meat. Yeah. So it sounds like you were never, you never, I don't know if you went through a teenage phase of being tempted by sort of nihilism or a relativism that can come from people without a religious grounding. It's sort of, sort of sense of, well, we're in a meaningless physical universe with a cosmic heat death at the end, you know, does anything matter? Or, or the relativistic approach of groups just negotiate. It sounds like this idea of the badness of suffering sort of steered you past those. Uh, yeah, I think it did. Um, I was aware of that way of thinking, you know. I, I read Bertrand Russell. I think he was the first philosopher who I read, and I read him as a teenager in high school. And I still remember he has this line where he says something like, um, the universe, you just mentioned the heat death of the universe. He said the universe or our solar system or something like that will maybe our Earth will come to an end in a in, in a four billion years or something like that. And uh, a, a woman stood up and said something in which he referred to four million years. She'd clearly misheard. And and Russell corrected her and she said, oh, well, that's all right then. <laughs> the relief. The relief, that's right. Um, and uh, so, I, you know, I, I was aware of that kind of uh, argument about it's all pointless. But Russell himself didn't think so, right? He was a fine example of saying, you know, campaigning for nuclear disarmament, for example. Um, and, and he wrote many other essays about moral issues in which he was clearly, uh, you know, within humans, for humans anyway, he was clearly um, somebody who was concerned to minimise suffering and maximise happiness. Didn't extend it as far as I remember to non-human animals particularly. But uh, so, yeah, no, I was not, was never really a, a nihilist who said nothing matters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that would be a strange term for you to take at this point as well. So, <laughs> you've uh, so so that concept of suffering, and I guess the intrinsic badness of suffering, I guess runs through into utilitarianism, and you're probably the world's best known utilitarian now. I think of utilitarian. I'm quite sympathetic to it myself. I mean, ultimately, I think I'm a consequentialist because I care about the experiences of sentient beings and those are consequences so in some sort of ultimate sense you know happy with consequentialism and i'm quite drawn to utilitarianism as well one of the most powerful things i think utilitarianism does is it drives us to very generously extend our scope of moral consideration it points out that yes your suffering your experience your interest in living matters but so does that of others and it pushes that scope really clearly and deliberately but some of the criticisms of utilitarianism are that, although it's very generous in pushing our moral scope out, it seems to, for some people, come with a disconnection from the actual individual's concerned, if that makes sense. So there's a sense that the individual being, rather than being valued in a sort of classic empathic or sympathic sense from what is it like to be them and their interests and their perspectives, can almost become a sort of a container of utility, which means that individuals can be replaced or suffering can be offset or it can be aggregated in various ways. And, and I think people recognise the sort of 
policy level mathematics of some of that stuff. You know, having two people suffer is worse than having one person suffer. But they get very nervous about the sort of calculation, aggregation and, and offsetting that for them takes some utilitarians away from this sort of personal appreciation of the individual being. So I'm interested, and that's that's one of the things that's motivated me to keep this idea of sentientism as sort of ethically pluralistic. But I'm interested in how you think about that type of challenge to utilitarianism, whether you think it's valid or... First, predictably, I, I don't think it's valid. Um, I think that uh, on the one hand, as you say, it's it we should accept that for two people to suffer um, equally, and you know, let's say this, in similar circumstances, is worse, in fact, twice as bad as for one person to suffer. Uh, so I think we we do have to aggregate it. To me, it, just, it doesn't make sense to refuse to aggregate. But I don't think that should prevent us from empathy with individuals. And when sometimes we may have to say, well, we have to let that person suffer because otherwise five other people will suffer more than that person is suffering. That doesn't prevent us from regretting that and seeing that something is lost there and empathizing with that person. And if there's some way that you can reduce that person's suffering without causing others to suffer more, um, you should do so. So um, I don't myself see that as a, uh, as a real you know, knockdown or objection to utilitarianism. So, it's, so it's, it's, it's more a, you'd say it's more of a misinterpretation of utilitarianism or a... i think it's to say, well it's not that it's a complete misinterpretation because as i said you know it does utilitarianism does accept that sometimes you have to allow or even cause suffering to one person mm. to prevent more suffering to others um so it's not a complete misunderstanding but the idea that therefore we don't have empathy for the people who suffer that they're just i think as you said you know it's like this utility is a liquid we pour into more containers and there's nothing to think about other than that, um, that seems to me to be wrong because both pleasure and pain and suffering and happiness are always instantiated within one sentient being. There's no such thing as uh, pleasure or pain floating around the universe unattached to a sentient being. So we should certainly focus on the sentient beings and, and their well-being. Yeah, thank you. And I think one of, one of the a really crisp example of that is this idea of offsetting that some people will sometimes bring forward. And I think there's one sense where offsetting might make sense because we often have to take difficult ethical trade-offs. You know, we might need to benefit one by harming another, and and those are difficult ethical trade-offs. And I can see how that, you know, in some circumstances makes sense. My my nervousness with the almost the terminology of calling it offsetting is that I have come across people who seem to think that sort of activity is a bit like offsetting carbon in the atmosphere. So you could put some carbon in the atmosphere, you could offset that by taking it back out of the atmosphere, and it is gone. You have genuinely offset it. You've de literally deleted the carbon. It's it's gone. And that's not something I don't, I think you can do with the suffering of sentient beings. I think you might have a trade-off where you could justify the harm of one by benefit to another. But that being is, I mean, as you're saying, that being is still suffering, and that suffering is still salient. So that's partly why I get nervous about you know, using terms like offsetting because it seems to imply that that suffering no longer exists because I've created a better benefit somewhere else. And of course, it does exist. Um, certainly, yeah. um, I've I've come across the term uh, again in the uh, effective altruism movement, 
where some people who are concerned about animal suffering and, and are opposed to the infliction of unnecessary suffering on animals say, um, but why does it follow that I should be uh, vegan or even vegetarian? Is that the most effective way for me to reduce suffering? Um, maybe it would be more effective for me to, let's say, give $1,000 to an effective charity fighting for animals um, uh, rather than stop eating animals. And possibly it may be, but, you know, my, my response is always, well, why not do both if you've got $1,000 to spend um, and you're not going to um, have less by being vegetarian or vegan unless you buy some of the really uh, expensive plant-based alternatives that are in supermarkets, but there's plenty of very inexpensive uh, products, in fact, cheaper than, than eating meat. So, uh, and I think that not only reduces demand for meat, of course, admittedly by a, a microscopic extent, if only one person is doing, but it sets an example um, and it makes it more likely that others will become vegetarian or vegan, um, as in fact I did by uh, happening, happening to have lunch with, with one. So um, I, you know, th yeah, my answer to that kind of offsetting is to say, you know, yes, good, make the donation to the most effective uh, animal charity you can find, but set a good example and uh, and don't buy the products of cruelty either. Yeah. And it's, an, it's another of very many examples where if you take that approach and apply it in intrahuman ethics, that individual would never support the idea. You know, you'd never allow a murderer to offset their killing spree That's by right. donating to highly effective and by donating to the life you can save, right? That that just wouldn't work. So it's very interesting to do that thought experiment just to identify whether people are actually trying to apply a completely different mode of ethics based on the species, which by definition, I guess, is speciesist. So I I know that's that's uh, interesting to hear. And we've we've already come on to this second critically important question of ethics, which I think is almost more important than which ethical system you choose, which is the one of moral scope. And if uh, morality is about whether and how we care for others and how, how we act in that context, a critical question is who are these others and who gets to count and who matters? And you've, you've touched on your personal journey already and that there was a sense in your family of caring about suffering, not just for non-humans and your experience of fishing and, and I guess your sense of empathy there. And you've told this story many times before, but it would be interesting to understand your journey of how you went from those initial seeds to where you are now, where you're saying, look, every sentient being warrants serious moral consideration. Yes, I'd have to say that those uh, initial seeds that I mentioned uh, failed to germinate for a very long time. And obviously, I'm not at all proud of that. But the social the social default and even social indoctrination is so powerful and so controlling. It's I mean that is basically the default. Almost every young person, you know, feels an intuitive empathy, right? Yeah, much more so um, when I was growing up in the nineteen sixties uh, uh, than it is today. Because um, I, I mentioned already that I became a vegetarian after uh, sort of accidentally having lunch with a vegetarian and asking him why he, you know what his problem was with meat um but um you know i was 24 at the time i was a graduate student already finished my undergraduate studies at the university of melbourne finished a master's degree at the university of melbourne and then gone to oxford for a further graduate degree um and i had never had a serious conversation with a vegetarian about why they were vegetarian um and in fact i i don't even know 
that apart from um, some Indians who are vegetarian for sort of cultural and Hindu reasons, which clearly was not something that was going to appeal to me, I don't think, I don't know that I'd even met a vegetarian or had a meal with a vegetarian as far as I can remember. And for young people today, that's unthinkable, of course, right? There are vegetarians everywhere, especially if they're going through university. There's all sorts of vegetarian options on the university cafeteria menus, which there were not when I was there, at least say not when I was an undergraduate. Uh, so that was, I, 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 you know, I don't want to make excuses for myself. I, I should have, I, I was already studying ethics. I was interested in ethics. I should have questioned the boundaries of moral concern uh, many years earlier. But um, it, it was a bit of a shock to uh, realize that I, I, like my parents, had never seriously inquired into what animals are going through to be turned into, into meat. Um, I had, you know, driving around Australia and the country, you would see cows outside. Uh, sometimes you would see chickens outside, although I suppose, you know, it was more likely you were seeing cows. Um, and I assumed that the animals that I was eating had generally had a, a, a reasonably natural, tranquil, protected life. And then they'd had this one bad day when they got rounded up and sent to slaughter. But, uh, Certainly by 1970, uh, when I was uh, studying at Oxford, that was no longer the case, Not definitely not for chickens or, or laying hens uh, or for pigs. Um, maybe beef cattle were still mostly outside, but um, already they were often being sent to feedlots uh, to be finished. So uh, I'd, I'd remained ignorant about that, and I had not really thought about this as an issue that, you know, gee, I should know about this. I'm eating this. I'm eating meat every day as I was up to then. And I'm not really inquiring into what happens to the animals. And, and you know, looking back on that now, it's, it's, it's shocking. But at the time, it just was, as you say, the default. Yeah. And I think that's one of the interesting things that, you know, gives me pause for concern about this sort of sentientism idea. Because in the way it's based on this naive, optimistic view that if we can fix the epistemology, you know, use evidence and reason, and we have a sentient compassion, then you know most of the world's problems would be solved as a result. But actually, the real core of the problem, as we come back to talking about later, is really in the social norms, the political will, human psychology, and often that's the dark heart of where these problems really lie. It's not actually in the sort of the philosophical basics. It's about how to actually drive those through human psychology and social norms. But that's right, and of course, there's a long history of humans of believing what's convenient for them to believe. I mean, just oh yeah, look look at look at the southern states of the United States during the slave era, um, and even you know very educated and generally humane people like like Thomas Jefferson um, was still a, a slave owner. Um, and although you know there's some remarks of his that express some doubt about this and hope that eventually slavery will end, there's no sense that this is a moral outrage and. The only decent thing he can do is free his slaves right now. Um, never comes to that thought. Uh, and, you know, I think the same sort of thing is going on with regard to our thinking about animals. We find it convenient for us. We don't want to go against social norms. We don't want to have, you know, members of our family and other friends, uh, uh, you know, criticised by saying what you're doing is seriously wrong. Um, so I think all of those things influence the fact that Meat eating continues even even when we tell people, look, these animals were reared on factory farms and uh, their lives were pretty terrible, which you know, is a story I'm, I'm again telling in Animal Liberation now to bring that up to date as to what's what's happening right now. 
Yeah. And that's another theme that you address in in the book is is the echoes between, I guess, progressive intrahuman social justice causes and what we're trying to do on the non-human animal cause now. And, and, and we see exactly that sort of behavior today where people will, in theory, you know, say, of course, I care about the suffering and the lives of all animals, but that doesn't run through into their practical choices and doesn't run through into institution policies. And I wonder if it almost feels like we've managed to get to the next level with a non-human animal topic, because it's now become almost a trope amongst some public intellectuals to say, to openly admit that future generations will condemn us for our treatment of non-human animals in farms, for example, today, and they will say, and I agree, they should condemn us. And even then, the individual is, so it's not just, you know, I have compassion for these things, but I'm still going to continue to operate. It's they explicitly acknowledge the condemnation and the correctness of the condemnation. And yet still we'll say, you know, but I'm waiting for clean meat or, you know, whatever else the, the answer might be. So it's funny how we managed to take it to another level of cognitive dissonance and acrasia. And... Yeah, but I think, you know, as it becomes, you know, if we get a critical mass of people who are vegetarian or vegan, I think... Therefore, it becomes even easier. It's pretty easy today, at least in Western countries, but it becomes even easier and, um, you know, the uh, alternatives become better um, and perhaps more economically competitive for those who are not well off. Um, I think all of that will help um, because the easier people see it to make that change, then they'll also make the uh, uh, epistemic changes about, you know, finding out for themselves how animals are treated and taking that seriously. Agree, yeah. And I think we'll come back to that when we talk about how to make a better future. Um, so to, to round out this section about who, who matters, I think you and I both agree that sentience and being a sentient being qualifies you for moral consideration. Um, how do you think of, I guess, the origins of sentience and the boundaries of sentience? So I've, again, another thing that sentientism I've suggested should be irritatingly neutral on is it doesn't list the species or the types of beings that are sentient it just says let's take a naturalistic approach with humility and prudence to try and work that out so it doesn't have a yeah, clear start and, and reason and evidence as you said right That's yeah and which will shift yeah. over time as well which again yeah, of course can be contentious because some people like to I, th I think it's i think it's shifting right now um uh so i was pleased to see that um the united kingdom um for those not aware uh the european union has had a, a a basic law saying that animals are sentient beings. Exactly what the legal effect of that was is not very clear. It was certainly wasn't as dramatic as you would hope, but it did give them a kind of legal status. And when the United Kingdom left the European Union, a number of animal advocates in the United Kingdom said, hey, this means that we don't have a law saying animals are sentient beings. Uh, we should have one. And uh, to its credit, the, the Johnson government uh, agreed to that and introduced legislation. And when that legislation was uh, going through, there was then a discussion about which animals are covered by this legislation. And uh, I know that uh, Jonathan Birch, who's a, a professor at uh, London School of Economics, uh, was uh, headed a, a team that did a report on this. And uh, the report recommended that cephalopods, um, octopus and squid uh, in particular, and um, decapod crustaceans, which is a group of crustaceans that includes lobsters and crabs, um, are uh, sentient or very probably sentient. And, uh, you know, really impressively, uh, the 
Parliament accepted that. Uh, you know, interesting that uh, basically a philosopher's report is very quickly accepted by the British Parliament, um, and so now they're covered. And that's something that wasn't the case before and still isn't the case in many countries that limit protection to vertebrate animals. No, these are not vertebrates, of course. So, uh, yes, it's uh, the boundaries are changing. Um, and I, again, was looking at that also in terms of writing the, the new version of animal liberation. Yeah. And one of the other things I liked about animal liberation now is that you're encouragingly open-minded about those boundaries. That, you know, there isn't a sense of dogma from you about where to draw the line. So when you talk about some of the simpler invertebrates and some of the simpler insects or bivalves and oysters, for example, and, and even the idea of plant sentience, which is most often used as a sort of anti-vegan trolling on Twitter, but there is also a, you know, a genuine interest in, have we underestimated plants and their capabilities? Yeah. Yeah. Again, I, I've taken the possibility of plant sentience um, more seriously in the new edition than I have in the earlier editions where I dismissed it pretty rapidly. But there is some interesting research about plants and they're clearly more complex living organisms than we thought. There is you know, some knowledge that they are in some sense communicating, but is this an intentional communication or not? Um, I'm still guessing not because you know, there isn't a brain or a central nervous system or anything like that. Um, I'm still thinking that it's probably more at a, a chemical level that has evolved as a defense mechanisms against um, insects or things of that sort. But I'm, I'm less certain about plant, plants not being sentient uh, than I was when I wrote the first edition. Yeah, thank you. Now, it's, some people take an even more radical stance where they will suggest that there might be consciousness, if not sentience, beyond the plant kingdom as well, even to the extent of considering whether electrons and quarks might in some minimal level have some micro consciousness. And that, I mean, that takes us on to another topic I'd be fascinated to understand your view on, which is the philosophy of mind. So that's another thing which sentientism is neutral on, right? It doesn't say you should take a panpsychist stance or a uh, illusionist stance. I mean, personally, I think sentience and consciousness are classes of evolved information processing. And, no more than that. So sentientism is quite neutral about what sentience actually is in operation, but it just says whatever it is, it matters and it's morally salient. But I'm interested in your view of philosophy of mind, uh, whether you fit into one of those schools of thought or... I've, I've not gone deeply into panpsychism, I, I have to say, um, and uh, I see no reason for believing that electrons or quarks are or could be sentient, but uh, I don't claim any real expertise behind that statement i take a view rather like you do that you need to be reasonably complex organism that there needs to be some kind of brain or nerve centers um and that the more complex it is the more likely it is that there's sentience and that also correlates with more um, complex behavior so um, if for example we ask the question are, are insects conscious well there's such a huge variety of insects that it seems very unlikely that the answer is either yes or no. The answer is much more likely to be, to be um, well, some may be, um, and they may be the ones like bees, for example, who both have more neurons than, um, say, a mealworm, to take another example, um, uh, and also show more complex behaviour in terms of uh, communicating through the waggle dance, the uh, direction and, and distance of uh, a source of, of pollen. 
so um, yeah, it's possible. I, again, you know, I don't. I'm not saying that these are conscious. I'm just saying that uh, that's a, uh, definitely a possibility. Yeah, thank you. And one of the one of the, I had I've had a number of conversations around panpsychism and whether and how it impacts ethics in this series. And one of my favourites was with Luke Roloffs, who um, is an amazing philosopher who also happens to be vegan. Um, and uh, we were discussing whether there is a sort of resolution whereby. If as a panpsychist, you think that consciousness is, if if you like, some sort of primordial basis of all physics, and so in a sense, is almost everywhere. If you did imagine an electron or a photon being conscious in this sense, and sometimes they'll refer to it as micro-consciousness to distinguish it from what you and I mean as consciousness. To my mind, that would be a consciousness with no proprioception, with no sensation, with no language, with no memory, with no... It, I mean, it essentially strips out everything I think of as the potential components of consciousness. Right. So to my mind... Well, what is left? Yes. Well, to my mind, that doesn't make sense to call it consciousness anymore. But if they want to call it micro-conscious, um, I'd say, well, that's fine. But that micro-consciousness is not sentient because it cannot have an experience that is valenced, you know, because right. for a photon it's traveling at the speed of light, time doesn't even pass for it. So how could you ever arm a photon? So in a way, I've that's partly why I focus more on sentience rather than consciousness is to sort of insulate myself from the panpsychist oh, micro-consciousness view. But it was interesting because we we almost came to a sort of resolution where he has a panpsychist worldview, or at least he gives that good credence, and I don't, I'm a sort of boring materialist. But whereas he thinks there are micro-consciousnesses over here. He doesn't necessarily think they're morally salient because he agrees they're probably not sentient, but we both agree that sentience is roughly where you know, the scientific consensus you were just describing is across the animal kingdom. So hence him being a vegan like uh, you and me. So yeah, so it's, it's, it's interesting to explore that even with a very different philosophy of mind, you might still come back to it. A... The question is how he defines consciousness, right? And, yeah. um, uh, you know, if you take... Tom Nagel's famous statement about, you know, is there something that it's like to be that thing? Then presumably the answer for an electron is no. There's nothing that it's like to be that thing. So yeah. uh, as I use the term consciousness, I don't think it applies. Yeah, and I, I think they, I wouldn't speak for Luke, but I think they would say that they do think there is something it's like to be an electron, but it's so minimally insignificant it's very hard for us to identify with what that experience might even be like so i don't know okay yeah well let's let's leave that for the moment but that's that's interesting um one of the uh challenge there's a few challenges to a sort of sentientist stance one is obviously anthropocentrism and saying look no humans matter and and so on and you and i both would reject that stance but interestingly i i as far as i can work out the term sentientism was actually coined by people who are criticizing it. So there are a couple of mentions of it in the 70s uh, by uh, Lewis and by Rodman, who were actually picking up your work and and criticizing sentientism. And there's a, I've actually got an interesting quote from Rodman here in 1977, where he says, um, Singer achieves an expansion of our moral horizons just far enough to include most animals with special attention to those categories most appropriate for defining the human condition in the years ahead. The rest of nature is left in a state of thinghood, having no intrinsic worth, acquiring instrumental value only as resources for the well-being of an elite of sentient beings. Homocentrist rationalism has widened out into a kind of zoocentrist sentientism. 
So he was almost saying, look, you're you're discriminating against the non-sentient stuff. And in a way, this is just another thing that humans do, defining a criteria that suits us and those most like us. And once again, we're putting the rest of nature outside of that. So he pushes for a, you know, a biocentric and even an ecocentric view. What, what's your response to those bio and ecocentric? So Rodman was certainly one of the early ones to do that, but there are quite a few others. Um, oh, yeah. Arnie Nace, the Norwegian philosopher, was was certainly one who talked about that. And, and, and you know, there are a lot of people who want to find intrinsic value in nature. And um, I admit I'm, I'm somewhat uncomfortable because I, I really enjoy being in nature and I love being in big forests, actually, just over the uh, recent Easter vacation we have here in Australia. I went to... Um, uh, with with family to a, a forested area an hour and a half out of Melbourne, and we walked among some uh, enormous eucalypts uh, over eighty meters tall um, that have been there for hundreds of years. And uh, uh, you know, it is an ethereal experience. It's a uh, you know, like I, I mean, I can get that going into a soaring Gothic cathedral too, of course, especially if it's. A medieval cathedral so you know it doesn't tell me much doesn't inspire me to believe in god um but uh you know i guess because the forest was not created by humans and uh nothing is unchanged by humans sadly anymore in these days of climate change but uh, it's it's roughly as it's been for perhaps you know hundreds of thousands of years um if not millions uh and i can understand when people want to say look this isn't you know, just of instrumental value. I mean, uh, imagine that there were no animals in this forest. Of course, there are a lot of animals in the forest, a lot of sentient beings living in the forest. And if you cut down the trees, uh, they would die. So, but but they would say, imagine that there were no animals living in the forest, no sentient beings, and um, you know the timber is useful and so on. Why don't we cut it all down? Um, and that troubles me. Now, again, you could think of instrumental reasons why we shouldn't and what instrumental reasons that benefit sentient beings um as they are including your aesthetic appreciation of the foresters of course exactly that yeah and but it somehow strikes me as a kind it would be a kind of vandalism to chop it down just as it would be kind of vandalism to go into a, a national gallery in london and, and destroy some of the finest paintings there so i I sort of see the point, but I, I can't actually agree with it all the same, that uh, there is intrinsic value beyond the bounds of sentience. Yeah, thank you. I think I come to a very similar point in that, you know, I, I, I will share a really rich environmental consideration with eco-centrists, but I have the same, come to similar conclusions because of the instrumental value of the environment to all of the sentient beings. Uh, so I think you can still care deeply in an instrumental sense, even if it's not intrinsic. And um, and I guess what flips that around is if you imagine a you know distant planet, and of course there are very many with their own ecosystems uh, with presumably no sentient life on them at all, a consistent ecocentrist would want to care about those ecosystems just as much as ours. And of course they don't, right? Because the real reason we, most of us care about the environment is because we're 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 in it and other sentient beings are in it. Um but but at the same time, I'm quite relaxed about people going beyond sentience if they want to. I'm more worried about sentient beings being excluded. And in a sense, that's my challenge to the mainstream modern environmental movement, because it seems to be claiming a sort of generous ecocentrism, but actually they haven't expanded their moral scope to include the ecosphere and the biosphere and the sentiosphere. 
they've they're really just putting a spin on anthropocentrism and actually the reason they care about the environment is because of human well-being and human ecosystem services and human comfort and and the reason why i come to that diagnosis is if those individuals exclude vast quadrillions of sentient beings from practical moral consideration which seems to be inconsistent if you're an ecocentrist so the idea of having a really rich environmental concern but not including sentient farmed beings and not including sentient wild animals in your moral consideration but at the same time being more willing to offer rights to trees rocks rivers and ecosystems than you are to individual sentient beings that seems to have made a that's a mistake to me um i agree that it's a mistake if they actually uh, hold those values um again thinking of the practical consequences uh the fact that uh the animal raising industry the meat industry and the dairy industry produce uh, large quantities of greenhouse gases and are a major contributor to climate change and that that will become increasingly significant as we switch to clean energy away from fossil fuels but the expansion of the meat industry is is still going to cause climate change so um, environmental groups are now in fact uh, serving more uh, vegan food when you go to their events um, and that's been a a positive change. And they do oppose, at least the ones that I'm in touch with, do oppose factory farming, uh, partly for climate reasons, but also it's a tremendous source of, of local environmental pollution. Um, you know, the, the manure gets into the rivers, uh, the air pollution is terrible around them. And it's it's basically, it's, it's a wasteful system because we have to grow so many crops um, to feed to these animals. And we get back you know, varies with the species, but maybe 10%, maybe 20 or 30% at the most of the food value of what we feed in. So if we didn't do that, we could allow a lot of cropland to return to nature, absorbing carbon, restoring ecosystems. Um, and I think a lot of environmentalists are now realising that. So um, there's more harmony than there was in, in terms of the practical consequences. I agree. I think that taboo against challenging animal agriculture is still quite strong, but it is, it's being chipped away at, it's breaking down. And and the facts are just, as you say, so incontrovertible, the shocking waste of feed conversion ratios, the fact we could free up 75% of agricultural land if we switch to plant agriculture. I mean, it's just, the story is absolutely overwhelming. That's even before you come onto the emissions uh, and the pollution stories as well. So I agree that's that's breaking down. So there's, there's another way that people will challenge sentience's uh, criteria for moral inclusion. And, and that's because they'll look at, certain other aspects of entities and two that i've discussed with get previous guests include ideas of uh agency or dignity or you know are there other qualities or characteristics or capabilities we should consider over and above sentience that might make us be even more generous in our moral scope do you have a sense of any of those sort of alternative criteria to sentience as a guide uh so to take the two you mentioned um, I think this idea that there's some special dignity about human beings and about all human beings, as is typically said, um, that does not apply to any non-human animals is is really groundless. So it's never argued for why that should be the case, um, with the exception, perhaps, again, of religious people who say, well, we were made in the image of God and they weren't, or we have immortal souls and they don't. But putting aside religious views, um, I've never seen a good argument for why all humans, um, you know, including psychopathic murderers and including um, uh, those with really profound intellectual disabilities, um, 
should have more dignity than, let's say, an elephant or a gorilla, um, beings which in many cases will surpass uh, some humans um, in their intellectual capacities. Um, so I can't see any justification for saying that uh, dignity is is species-based. Um, you might argue that it's based on a certain level of cognitive awareness um, where that would might then mean that we deny it to some humans, but we grant it to some non-humans. But, you know, when you say that to people, I, they're, they're generally not very attracted to that view and they um, uh, sort of pull back from it. And I think really it is sort of, as I say, an, another form of attempting to justify Speciesism. Well, there's some people do use dignity as a way of trying to extend rather than to restrict. So one interesting example is the idea of whether, you know, whether dead people or dead animals still have dignity. That means we should treat them in a certain way, independent of the suffering of or the flourishing of the living people around them. But So it can go both ways. But I agree. I, 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 suppose, I suppose it could. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, let's, but I'm interested in your view on the agency point, because, again, if, if people are using that to extend, I'm more relaxed than if they are about restricting it but um, well i mean again about... again clearly some animals have agency in, in ways that some humans don't we, you know none of us were born with agency so so it's definitely relevant there um and it is relevant to moral judgments because um we you know a lot of our moral judgments are directed at people for doing something that is wrong and blaming or criticizing them for it maybe even punishing them for it in some cases and um, they're directed towards praising people and encouraging them to do certain things. And that works with those who are agents, and especially it works with agents with whom we can communicate. Um, and that is most, but not all, humans. And some non-humans, you know, if you see people with their, with their dogs, for example, they're certainly communicating uh, with them and they're praising them when they do the right thing, when they come when they're called or when they sit or whatever. And they're um, blaming them uh, when uh, the large dog sort of attacks a small dog who happens to be being walked along the same path. So, um, yeah, we do attribute some agency to some non-human animals. Uh, uh, and, it's, and it's relevant um, in that sense. But it's a different question, I think, from the question of does this being have intrinsic value? Does this being's experiences have value and i don't think you need agency for that and again you know let's look at our own infants um it's clear that they don't have agency i don't know at what stage they get agency but let's just say in the first month of life i think it's very clear that they don't have agency but um does that mean that their suffering doesn't matter um of course not um we should be solicitous about you know if there's if they're suffering in some way that we can prevent it matters greatly so regardless uh, of agency yeah regardless of agency so clearly you know once you recognize that with human infants you have to extend that to non-humans including those that don't have agency i totally agree i think what regardless of any other capacity if a being is sentient it matters they matter um i've got actually my next interview is with another philosopher nico dillon who is um he's again suggesting that we take agency as a way of maybe even extending Sentient. So he's thinking that if you if you think about maybe the very simplest insect that maybe isn't sentient, but you could still imagine it as an agent which is trying to achieve goals in an environment, and those goals could be thwarted. 
does thwarting the, those goals have moral significance, even if the entity themselves doesn't suffer as a result? And my, and my response to that is, no, I don't think so. If a, if a being doesn't care about its goals being thwarted, then why should we? But he's interestingly, again, suggesting we should, you know, should we go even beyond sentience to think about yeah, some but, sort of... But that will raise questions about plants again, won't it? Because you and could say... That's maybe. Great, great. Uh, yeah, and maybe thermostats, yes, that's right. Yeah, thank you. Well, let's move on to the the final big question, which is how can we make a better future? And in a way, that's what Animal Liberation Now is trying to do. Um, and I'd love to get your sense about how do we make the world better more generally. But if we stay on the non-human animal topic for the moment, I think many readers of Animal Liberation Now will see a really clear clarion call you know there's a rejection of speciesism there's a call for the equal consideration of like interests quite a strong egalitarian stance and you know liberation is in the title it's not just saying let's be a bit nicer it's talking about liberation so on the one hand there's a really strong clear call and i think that runs through to the fact that i won't put words in your mouth but i think your view of where we want to get to probably is one without animal exploitation, suffering and death, in a sense. But I think quite a few people who read the book would also be worried that there's some, some risks there as well. And some of them echo the challenges we talked about that are often put towards utilitarianism. But they might include a focus on suffering reduction, a focus on factory farming, which might have an implication that non-factory farming could be ethical. There's the idea of humane killing, you know, as if killing a being against their will could be an act of kindness. There's some hints of openness towards, you know, could we be a conscientious omnivore? So it just feels that there's some themes that run through some of your thinking and the book that might undermine that sort of clarion clear call for an end to, you know, these exploitative systems. And I think to put it a different way around, the people with those concerns, I think are worried that, and I have, I share some of them, are worried that they can see an end state because humans are so good at coming up with excuses not to change or to minimize change, where we've actually got a larger animal agricultural system where more animals are being killed and exploited and imprisoned. But we found some way to rebrand these exercises as humane, high welfare, sustainable, and you know, and on we go. Now, so I'm I'm really interested in one, what sort of response people give to animal liberation now, but I'm interested in how you respond to those types of challenges to the way you lay out your stall and and your own view about the future we should be trying to build for other sentient beings. Right. Well, I don't know how people will respond to animal liberation now, of course, because you're one of the handful of people who read it at this stage. Um, but I certainly uh, hope to find out how a lot of people react to it. Um, when you spoke about that clear clarion call, um, you said against uh, suffering and exploitation and death. Um, and I think my clarion call is really clear against suffering and exploitation. It's not so clear for the reasons that you mentioned about death. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that. One is, as we already talked earlier in this discussion, um, I think sometimes it's good for someone to die when, for example, they are suffering and that suffering can't be alleviated. When it's in their interests, yeah. 
Yeah, with yeah, with humans, generally speaking, we would ask for their consent. But I have written controversially also about uh, euthanasia for profoundly disabled infants, um, and I think that parents should sometimes be able to make that choice on behalf of their child and their family. And obviously, the infant can't uh, make that choice. But there are some cases where I think that might be a reasonable thing to make, uh, a reasonable decision to make. And um, when it comes to animals, obviously, again, um, you know, we do that. Um, people who have dogs who are getting old or have a, an illness that's not going to be cured will take the dog to the vet to have the dog put down. And um, it's in the dog's interest, but you couldn't say that the dog has consented to it. The dog doesn't really understand that. So then, you know, those are some cases where I think, you know, we, sh we should actually regard death as a positive thing for a, a non-human animal. And as I understand it, that's that's the, the root meaning of the word euthanasia is a good death, implying yes. the death is good for the, for the one that's dying, yeah, in the best of our judgment, yeah. That's right. And, and then the more difficult questions are the ones that you, you mentioned about, um, you know, humane farming, say, um, of various kinds. So... Let's let's take an example where you have um, free range laying hens, right? Um, and uh, the hens are out on grass. There's um, uh, they're not too densely stocked, so the, the grass survives. They can roam freely, but they can be in the social groups that they are. They're protected from predators at night, and generally they have good lives. But um, hens, like humans, um, cease to be fertile at a certain age. Um, in fact, their, their rate of egg production will drop as they age and then it will cease altogether. Um, and commercial producers are not, well, let's say very few commercial producers are going to feed hens who are not laying eggs um, and, and allow them to have an old age and then perhaps bring them a good death when they're no longer uh, capable of moving around or feeding themselves or, uh, or suffering. So... Is it a bad thing to have hens who live for a certain number of years um, but not their full life and are then killed? I, I find that a difficult philosophical question and it gets into these quite complex issues about whether it's, you know, if you have a life that is clearly on balance a, a positive one but a condition of that existence at all is that you get killed at some point because otherwise the egg producers would not have those hens. Is that is that wrong or right? Uh, you know, this gets into these complex questions about population that Derek Parfit discussed in uh, uh, Reasons and Persons and, and other works. Um, and I do find them genuinely puzzling. And although I tried to argue against the view that bringing more people into existence is a good thing if they'll have happy lives, in the end, I thought that my attempt to do that failed. And... So I'm genuinely uncertain about those arguments in respect of, of issues about humans, and I'm therefore equally uncertain about them in respect to non-human animals. Yeah, thank you. And those population and ethics topics are, are deeply difficult. I guess my amateur working through them thinks that in a way we're, we're almost trying to package a deal together where we're saying well, we'll bring this chicken into existence on the condition that we'll kill it but it's a deal we're making with ourselves without the chicken being involved or consenting so it's there's a worry then that it is something that we're doing 
in a self-serving way because we want the product of this process. Right, but we do we make those decisions with children as well, of course. You know, we do, we'll, we do. We'll, we'll, have, we'll have children and we'll be able to give them good lives, but you know, they they don't consent. In this case, we're not going to kill them, of course, but but still. Uh, yeah. And I think that's the and, and I think that's you know the obvious differentiation, right? Because I think w when you have a child, of course, you know they will suffer and and die, but if you were to then choose to kill them based on a deal you'd done with yourself before they were born as a condition of bringing them into birth into into existence we'd think about that very differently yeah this is this is uh ishiguru's novel isn't it uh, never let me go about children yeah. who are brought into existence to be organ donors for others exactly and, I, and, and, I, I think, and they have a good life for a while and then then they get killed and i think that's the thing even even if we've made this deal with ourselves and we've said look it's better we've, we've worked out and we've calculated that it's better for this chicken to come into existence and then for us to kill it than for it to never existed at all as soon as we have created it i think we then have a moral obligation to that being as a as a moral patient which means that to kill it against its own interests is interested in continuing to live is just a wrong thing, regardless of whatever deal we've done with ourselves in advance to justify it. Um, so, yeah. But so then, I, then, of course, we won't have any more chickens, right? I mean, we'll have the one generation and we'll let them live out their full lives. And then the, the egg producers will say, we, we can't make it a living this way. Absolutely. So and no I'm totally, chickens. and I'm totally comfortable with that. And, and part yeah. of the reason I'm comfortable with it is because there's another thing that I think there's a, there's a mindset, particularly around the animal agriculture uh, space which I think is really deeply seated in most humans because of the way we've been brought up, which is that somehow we have to be able to continue doing this. So yes, let's have a conversation about doing it in slightly less bad ways or, you know, um, more sustainable ways or more, you know, less, less torturous ways, but there's a deep seated assumption. We have to continue doing this as if the choice to make the chicken exist or not have a chicken at all are the only the only two options, whereas clearly with the animal agriculture space, as an example, we actually have another alternative that doesn't involve us causing any or, or much less degree of harm and death that we could turn to that is already at industrial scale. So, sorry, I, I didn't I didn't understand what the alternative is here. Yeah, so the alternative would be not to not to consume eggs at all. Right, but that is a decision that the chickens the chickens don't exist. There are fewer chickens living good lives now. And, and I'm completely comfortable with that because the chicken that doesn't exist isn't a sentient being, so isn't a moral patient, so cannot be harmed. So, yeah, again, we're not going to solve population ethics here. No, but, we're not going to solve this issue, but but we do have a, a genuine, well, a, a genuine disagreement in that I'm at least uh, I'm not going to say what you said because that comes down clearly on one side and I'm much more ambivalent on that question than, than you are. Yeah, thank you. No, that's been interesting to, to dig into. Um, so... If we're going to make a world which either you know ends animal agriculture and exploitation or radically transforms them into something that is ethically acceptable to you, if not to me, um, how do you think, what's your theory of change about how do we make that happen? Because there are so many different change levers from individual choices to go vegan all the way through to UN declarations and everything in between. And, and you've written another book, One World, about a sort of global governance level that might you know, be at the top of that. What's, what's your general view about how to make change happen across all those levers? And again, it's too big a question to ask really with the time we have. Yeah, I, I think we have to try everything that we can do, but we certainly should be, going back to your original statement, using evidence and reason to try to figure really at what does work and what does persuade people. 
And there's a whole range of things. I, I took part in a study with uh, Eric Schwitzgabel uh, uh, about um, giving students in uh, university classes on meat ethics. And we actually managed to do a, a proper randomized controlled study here because we, in large classes, we randomized students into two groups, one of which got a discussion of meat ethics and one of which got a discussion of ethics of charity. That was just the control group. We didn't try to measure that. But we could measure whether students' diets were affected by the discussion of meat ethics because the students at, this was at Eric's University, the University of uh, California at Riverside, students generally uh, ate at the university cafeteria using their ID cards to pay for meals. And the ID records showed what meals they'd ordered. So um, with the permission of the University uh, Human Ethics Experimentation Committee, um, we were able to track um, what they ate. And we did find, not that they all became vegetarian or anything wonderful like that, but we did find a statistically significant difference um, a reduction in meat consumption in those who'd had meat ethics. So, you know, that shows that reasoning, talking uh, isn't useless. It does actually change people. Um, and that effect lasted. Unfortunately, we couldn't test it as long as we liked because of the COVID pandemic, but then they stopped going to coming to campus. But it lasted, I think, six months or something anyway. So that's good. Um, but then I think there are other completely different strategies, like trying to produce these alternative proteins, whether plant-based or cellular um, meat production uh, at scale um, and economically. So it competes economically with um, meat from animals um, and has the same kind of characteristics in terms of how you cook it, how it chews, how it feels in your mouth and so on. Because you know people, unfortunately, do seem reluctant to really change what they're eating, or a lot of people do, not everyone, this would be a way of reducing that cognitive dissonance where people say, oh, yes, I know it's wrong, but um, you know, I just can't uh, do without meat or I like meat so much or whatever. But um, if you say, fine, you can, you can have your meat or you can have something that's identical to meat, then I think that could also lead to a significant change. Um, and I also think um, that at the political level, campaigning for better conditions for farmed animals is a useful thing to do. And even for those who are sceptical about that and will say, well, that will just postpone the day when we end all animal exploitation. Um, I don't think that's true. I think actually that the evidence suggests that those countries which have the best animal welfare standards and have laws, for example, preventing the standard battery cage for hens, also have the highest rates of vegan and vegetarian living. So, um, uh, and, a, and a, a further factor, of course, is that um, it will increase the price of meat if um, you have better conditions for animals. That's why factory farms have such terrible conditions for animals. That will make it easier for these alternatives to compete with meat. So I think there's a lot of reasons for working politically as well as for changing your own diet and uh, for trying to work towards um, better alternatives, cheaper alternatives. Yeah. And there's some interesting initiatives going right up to the top of the global governance chain, including the sort of spaces you were talking about in one world, um, which might get some traction at those levels too. And I've done a couple of intellectual sort of thought experiments myself of taking the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and rewriting it as a Universal Declaration of Sentient Rights. And you can take the sentientist develop or the sustainable development goals and rewrite those from a sentientist perspective as well. So it's quite interesting to be able to take that sort of worldview and 
run it through many of the existing human institutions and see what it might do. Maybe maybe there's a vision for the future there. We'll see. Yeah, maybe there is. Um, I hope so. But uh, you know, as, as I said, in one world, uh, um, we do need stronger global institutions. And unfortunately, in the years since One World was published, the first edition was published in 2002, we seem to have moved away from stronger you know, global institutions. The, the, the trend that I thought was there has really failed to continue during these decades. And of course, the Ukraine war and the polarization between uh, Western nations on the one hand and uh, Russia possibly aided by China on the other um, is not going to make it any easier to get back to those strong global institutions. Yeah, and we'll just find out whether that's a, a blip uh, on the progress or not. It's a... Yeah, so, it'll so take time. One other quick thing I wanted to try and do before we wrap up is draw back to the even bigger picture about trying to make the world a better place. And of course, that's, I guess, the essential aim of effective altruism, the movement you've done so much to promote and develop. And in simple terms, effective altruism is a way of thinking that suggests that we should try and do the most good possible, as you've said already, you know, using evidence and reason. And most effective altruists do seem to share a sentiocentric scope with us as well, not all, but many, many do. And I think it's quite hard to challenge that aspiration. Who could not want to be effective and who could not want to be altruistic? But it's coming in for quite a lot of challenge at the moment and going through some growing pains as it just gets much more exposure. And some of the criticisms, frankly, I think are just sort of classic do-gooder derogation, which is something as a vocal vegan on Twitter I'm very used to. You know, There's a sense of there being something shameful or embarrassing about someone putting out a moral start. So it's quite, you know, reassures yourself to attack them and to, you know, assuage your own guilt. So there's, there's some do-gooder derogation, I think, in the criticisms of effective altruism. But there's also some more substantive, interesting criticisms of, if not the philosophy, the, the movement itself. And those can, again, echo some of the utilitarian challenges we talked about before, about, you know, have we disconnected from the perspective of the individual? Are we thinking in too clinical or, a, uh, you know, perspective of the universe way? Um, there's concerns about demandingness and the imperative to maximise and, you know, what could the uh, unintended consequences of those types of mindsets be? Some people will worry that effective altruism is too focused on a sort of neoliberal approach that is targeting technical fixes or NGOs or corporations rather than working through democratic or state or policy levers. Um, and there are some concerns about the sort of corporatization of philanthropy versus more grassroots organic organizations and whether effective altruism overall has quite a sort of Eurocentric stance and viewpoint rather than one that is richly engaged and emerging from some of the communities it's trying to help. So that's a big laundry list of, you know, some of the challenges I've seen raised at effective altruism. And obviously in the animal space, there's a fascinating book. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it yet um, called um, The Good It Promises, The Harm It Does by Laurie Gruen and Alice Crary and Carol Adams, which I think is collection of essays that's reflecting some of the challenges. It's too much to answer, but what's your overall sense of the nature of the challenges to effective altruism as a movement and, and where it should go next in response? I think a lot of those challenges are based on misunderstandings of the movement, um, which is 
you know, has has a lot of different aspects to it, and and I think is very open to what is the best thing to do. I mean, it's it's the the principles of it are really quite simple, as we've been saying. They are that you should want to make the world a better place, and you should use whatever resources you have available uh, to do that uh, as effectively as possible. Essentially, to make the biggest difference you can with those biggest positive difference you can with those resources. So when people say, "Oh, well, it's," neoliberal and it's um you know treating the the symptoms rather than the causes of poverty it's a band-aid approach um i think you know that may be the view that some people in the effective altruism movement have, have come to but they're very open people and if somebody comes out with a, uh, a hypothesis that why don't you try doing something else getting at the causes of poverty then they will certainly look at that and they will say, well, what's your view as to what the causes of poverty are? That's pretty complex. Um, and, you know, just to say, oh, it's global capitalism or whatever seems to me very simplistic. There's been poverty long before there was global capitalism and there's poverty in places that are not very much affected by global capitalism. Uh, and, and if they do say that, then the next question that uh, effective altruists will want to ask is, and how are you going to change that? Um, and I haven't seen anybody give any good accounts of, of how they're going to get rid of global capitalism. So, you know, but but if somebody does come up with a plan, or maybe it's some plan that's not quite as sweeping as that, um, and says, this is what you should be doing to get at the causes of poverty here, um, effective altruists will be very open to that. So I think that it's, it's a misconception to sort of say that there's this kind of particular type. As for the claim that uh, effective altruism is, uh, you know, largely European or Western or uh, Northern in the North-South kind of sense. You know, that's where the resources are. That's where the, a lot of people can, can help others in need. And the, the largest uh, numbers of people in extreme poverty uh, are in the South. As an Australian, I tend not to use these North-South terms for obvious reasons, but uh, they certainly say they're in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, to some extent, they're in uh, the... Uh, uh, South Asia as well, although um, India has greatly reduced the number of people in extreme poverty in that country. Um, and uh, yes, you know, certainly we want to uh, have, uh, we want to know what those communities want, but the groups that are supported by effective altruism don't just march into communities and say, this is what you need. They do say, you know, would you like to have this? And, and some of them, for example, give directly, uh, don't even want to tell them how to spend their money. They want to increase their money. They want to give them direct uh, grants or um, uh, basic minimum income and then say, you know, let's see what you do with it. Um, yeah. I mean, it's the ultimate expression of trusting the people you're trying to help is just here's the cash. Giving the money. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So so I, I, I really reject the idea that somehow this is, um, I don't know, people use terms like white savior complex or whatever, but, you know, you ask the people, in, the, in, in these uh, impoverished villages, whether they would like to have assistance. And, and they say yes. And if they didn't say yes, then you wouldn't do it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And and it, one of the difficulties, as with any movement or school of thought, is you, you know there are so many individuals and there's so much diversity within it. It's almost tried to overgeneralize, and it's a mistake to do that. But from the conversations I've had with people who are deeply involved in the effective altruist, movement in this series of conversations, they are some of the most genuinely caring, intellectually curious, committed, impactful people I could ever hope to come across. 
to your point, I think that's what that's a central challenge to the effective altruist movement because it, of its commitment to using evidence and reason is is to bring this you know ability and this openness to criticism to bear. And I have enormous confidence that the movement, or at least most of the people within it, will absolutely do that because the commitment to do the most good is what drives their curiosity about the best ways of doing that, which means you have to be open to criticism and you have to be open to challenge. So I think it's going to be quite interesting as effective altruism moves through this sort of phase of more explicit public criticism, how, how it responds to that. But I, I quite agree. And I, uh, and in fact, I felt that I've met some truly wonderful people through effective altruism and through the organisations that I've worked with, like The Life You Can Save, that helps people in extreme poverty. Um, and they are both um, altruistic and often very thoughtful. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's really inspiring to see what people are prepared to do to help others, um, sometimes in terms of uh, donating money or time, which they may not have a lot of, um, and even in some cases, uh, for example, donating a kidney. I've, I've met people who have donated kidneys to complete strangers because they realised that that was something that would benefit the stranger more than it would harm them. I think that's truly admirable. And, of course, during COVID, uh, it was effective altruists who essentially organised the uh, volunteers for um, uh, human challenge trials, uh, the organisation called One Day Sooner, which was based on the idea that if we get a vaccine one day sooner, we will save lives. Um, and they were prepared to be infected with, uh, uh, with COVID um, under conditions in which they were um, isolated and uh, being examined, or, or, uh, and then they would get a, a candidate vaccine, which had not at that stage been proven, um, in order to speed up uh, vaccine development. I think that actually there was too much resistance to that in the medical establishment. It, it sort of should have accepted that offer earlier and could have saved many lives. It, there have now been some human challenge trials going ahead to help develop newer vaccines and variants and so on. But um, but it was there was a surprising amount of reluctance to take these clearly well-informed, intelligent, young and healthy volunteers um, and accept what they were asking to be basically do for the world. Yeah, yeah. Strange, isn't it? Very strange. Well, thank you for that. Um, I need to let you go. It's been an inspirational, fascinating conversation. Um, I have this sort of naive hope that philosophy, particularly moral philosophy, can still have a force in the world and that, I guess, worldviews like sentientism or related worldviews can ultimately shift the way humans think and can have a positive impact in the world as well. Um, and I can't think of any person who's more directly put that into practice. And as you said in Animal Liberation Now, philosophy ought to challenge the basic assumptions of the age and uh, that's exactly what you've been doing both in thought and in deed so it's been a genuine pleasure to speak to you on sentientist conversations is there anything else you'd like to add in that we haven't covered or um, no i think we've 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 covered enough for one conversation and we've covered the most important things i think i i just would echo what you said i, I think it's clear that philosophy can change the world um i already mentioned the study i did with uh uh, Eric Schwitzgable about uh, that. And uh, I've also, you know, through many, many people who've come up to me and said that they became vegan or vegetarian after reading Animal Liberation or others who read my book, The Life You Can Save and started donating to uh, effective charities. So, you know, I think that's a wonderful thing about philosophy and we should celebrate it and we should uh, make sure people know about it. There's a lot of disciplines in the humanities. People say the humanities are going through 
uh, crisis because more people are doing computer science and so on. But um, actually, philosophy generally is still thriving in, in many places. And, and that's because people are genuinely interested in it and because um, it does change the world. And uh, there's not too many uh, disciplines of which you can say that. Yeah, absolutely. And ultimately, everything is based off those foundations of how we understand reality and exactly. you know, what, what we choose to right. care about. So, yeah. Yep. Well, thank you. Where would you point people to follow your work, buy your books, uh, including the free version of Life You Can Save? Where, I can include links in the show notes, of course, but where would you download Yes, please do, to? because people who want to read The Life You Can Save can download it absolutely free from the website of The Life You Can Save. Um but uh, I have a website, petersinger.info. Um, it's not always fully up to date, but it does um, have a lot of information about me and my writings. Uh, so that's uh, a good place to go. And uh, I should mention, because we've been talking about utilitarianism, there's an excellent website now called utilitarianism.net, which discusses some of these challenges to utilitarianism that you've been talking about. And that's a further resource that I think people should know about. That's great. And you're still on Twitter, aren't you, I think? I do tweet, yes, and I'm also on Facebook. Um, I'm Peter Singer on Twitter, um, and I think it's called the uh, uh, Peter Singer's official page or something on on Facebook. I'm also on Instagram, which is Peter Singer underline underline, uh, sorry, Peter underline underline Singer. TikTok, uh, yeah. So uh, I'm not on TikTok. No, <laughs> sorry. My granddaughter says I should be. Yeah, it's only a matter of time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's brilliant. Thank you. It's a, it's an honour to have you on the I'm a Sentientist Award, and it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, you're a, an inspiration, Peter. Thanks for setting up uh, this uh, Sentientism and the podcast. Yeah, we only have. I think we have seven point seven point eight billion more humans to persuade. So we're well on we're well on our way. Two hundred thousand that you're persuading. I think we've right? got one or two hundred thousand already. Under the, most of them haven't heard of the word, but I think they're on board right. already. So. Probably. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalise rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?